Chapter 9 of The Boy Scouts on Swift River by Thornton W. Burgess. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 9 An Inquisitive Moose. For a brief instant, the four boys stared at the great animal approaching with such apparent unconcern. The expression on Woodhall's face was ludicrous. It was as if even yet his mind refused to believe what his eyes told him was reality. Then, as the moose came on, leisurely but without hesitation, all four sprang to their feet as by a common impulse and started a mass scramble for safety. While most of the surrounding woodland was of young second growth, there were, fortunately, two or three large yellow birches close by, and to the shelter of these the surprised voyagers fled. The landing was at a tiny opening on the bank of the river. To the right was a sharp rise of perhaps three feet, and from the top of this bank rose a giant birch, Walter sought safety behind this, where he was joined a second later by Plimpton. Woodhall and Hal each chose a tree on the other side of the little opening, climbing up them without delay. Too late Walter and Plimpton realized their choice had been less wise, for the trunk of the gray birch was too large to ship, and the lowest branches were well beyond reach. There was nothing for them to do but to trust to Providence that the moose would not prove ugly, and that in the event that he did, they could successfully keep the trunk of the tree between him and them. Without hesitation, the huge animal sauntered down the trail until some thirty feet from the two boys, shaking behind the big birch. There he paused and surveyed them with that deliberate stare which Walter had found so disconcerting back on the ridge, and found no less disconcerting now. He seemingly paid no attention to Woodhall and Hal, who, from the vantage of their safety in the treetops, were vainly trying to attract his attention and draw him away from their less fortunate comrades. Once he lowered his great head, and Walter heard Plimpton give a little gasp and felt the boy's grip upon him tighten. But he was no less frightened himself. He could feel his heart pounding like a trip-hammer, and he knew that Sister must feel him tremble, for his nerves were badly shaken. For what seemed like an eternity to the two victims, but what was probably only two or three minutes, the tableau lasted. Then the moose deliberately turned to the other side of the trail and began to browse in a tender brush. I, "'I think he likes the color of your jersey, Walt,' whispered Plimpton. For the first time Walter remembered that he was wearing a bright scarlet jersey, and he began to suspect that there might be some truth in Plimpton's observation. It would account for the strange interest manifested by the animal back on the ridge, and perhaps for the curiosity which had brought him to the landing.' Walter began to feel altogether too conspicuous, and this feeling was not decreased by Plimpton's next remark. I hope bread doesn't have the same effect on a moose that it does on a domestic bull. Walter opened his mouth to reply, but just then their huge jailer took it into its head to return and look the situation over again, munching a mouthful of twigs and leaves as he did so. He, he looks gentle, whispered Plimpton, almost like an ox but Walter could see nothing gentle or ox-like, perhaps thoughts of that scarlet jersey and Plimpton's unfortunate reference to the usual effect of that color on the average domestic bull affected the clearness of his vision. Perhaps it was the fact that the eyes staring at him in such an embarrassing way were altogether too small for the great head in which they were set. At all events, it seemed to him that so far from being gentle they held a sardonic gleam, a sparkle of wickedness and evil. He wished with all his soul that he could get rid of that jersey. The scrutiny of the moose lasted about as long as before, 
Then, with a shake of his huge head, which caused the tatters of velvet still clinging to the great spreading antlers to shake, and the deep black bell at his throat to swing, the lord of the forest walked down to the water's edge, and as calmly as if alone in the solitude of some remote forest retreat, began to drink. "'Now's your chance for a photograph, Walt,' yelled Hal. Walter said nothing. He was too busy stripping off his jersey. Besides, he had left his camera in the canoe, and it was unloaded at that, as Hal would have remembered if he had not been too excited to think. "'Keep your nerve, boys,' shouted Woodhull. "'He isn't ugly. If you don't do anything to excite him, he'll probably go off when he gets ready. I'm coming down to hold his attention. And the first chance you have, you slip over here and get up in these trees.' It was just then that Plimpton distinguished himself. "'Say, Walt,' he began eagerly, my camera and Woodhull's are in the top of that duffel bag right down there at the foot of the bank. Let's go down and get him. I don't believe he'll trouble us. Right here behind this tree is good enough for me, grunted Walter, jamming the obnoxious jersey under him. Here, you, don't be a chump, he added a moment later. But Plimpton had already stolen swiftly along the bank and slipped down to the duffel bag. With feverish haste, he untied the top and drew out the two cameras, one of which he tossed to Walter. Then, despite the shouts of protest from all three of his companions, he swiftly approached the drinking animal and made an exposure. The setting was ideal. The sun lay full upon the big animal and standing with his two forefeet in the water, his muzzle buried in the cooling stream. The heavy growth on the far bank cast a deep shadow to mid-river to meet the ripples made by the movements of the moose, which were hurrying in ever-widening circles. Rapids below showed in a sharp line of white, while drawn up on the beach with a canoe and a scattered duffel. At the click of the camera, the moose raised his head and turned inquiringly. Plimpton held his ground and made another exposure. Then, as if out of idle curiosity, the ungainly animal began to move straight toward the photographer. By this time, all three of the onlookers were excitedly yelling to the boy to run. Of them all, he seemed the least excited, and held his ground until he made a third snap. Then he scrambled up the bank and back to the protection of the tree. "'Are you crazy?' demanded Walter. Truth to tell, the latter was not a little chagrin that sisters should have shown more nerve in such a crisis. "'No, I'm not crazy. Just grabbing the opportunity of a lifetime. That critter wouldn't hurt a flea,' retorted Plimpton. "'Maybe he wouldn't, but I'd hate to be the flea to give him a chance,' grumbled Walter. "'You never can tell what a critter will do next. Hi there!' A final exclamation was addressed to the moose, who had followed Plimpton up to the bank and was now sniffing at the open duffel bag. Apparently he found nothing of interest in this, and out of pure mischief lowered his head sidewise, and catching the bag in one of his great antlers gave it a toss and spilled half its contents. Nosing each of these in turn, he next turned his attention to the other duffel. Now for the first time the big animal began to show signs of interest. He had found the food bag. He rolled it over, he licked it, he rolled it over again. All the time he showed a growing excitement. The onlookers were puzzled until suddenly Woodhall understood. It's the salt, he cried, he smells the salt. The excitement of the moose rapidly gave way to anger. He tossed the bag as he had done the duffel bag, but this one was tightly tied and it simply fell back inertly on the ground. He grounded into the sand with his horns, snorting angrily. Then he backed away a few steps and suddenly plunged forward, striking at the bag with both forefeet. This only served to bury it deeper in the sand. 
He pawed it up and once more tossed it. Hardly had it touched the ground when, with the quickness of a cat, he was upon it, rearing and striking down with his sharp-edged hoofs, all the time snorting with anger and emitting the air from his nostrils with a sharp, whistling sound. By this time Walter and Plimpton had slipped across to the safety of the trees on the other side, and from the security of their upper branches all four boys gazed down on the strange scene which but a few minutes before had been so peaceful. "'How about harnessing him up to haul the canoe over now, Lewis?' Hal shouted. "'He looks so gentle and ox-like,' murmured Walter to Plimpton, who was in the tree with him. "'I got his photograph anyway,' retorted Sister. "'I guess it's lucky you did, for there wouldn't have been much left of the cameras after the way he tossed that duffel bag,' replied Walter. The moose, meanwhile, had continued to vent his rage in the harmless food bag. Finally, he once more lowered his horns, and with a mighty throw of his head sent the bag flying through the air. It fell some distance back of him, over in the brush and out of his sight, and he appeared not to know where to look for it. For a few minutes he plunged this way and that, snorting and whistling, the black mane on his neck standing up stiffly, then failing to find the immediate object of his wrath and catching sight of the half-empty duffel bag, he turned his attention to that, with the result that the remaining contents were soon scattered in all directions and trampled into the sand. "'This is where you and I pay for those pictures you took, Plimpton,' shouted Lewis, for the bag had contained their personal effects. Happily, for the most part, changes of clothing, a blanket roll, and other unbreakable things— by some fortunate chance the canoe appeared to escape altogether the attention of the angry animal, or the episode would have been little short of real disaster. After venting his rage on everything else in sight, trampling everything possible to the sand, the moose pawed the ground viciously for a few minutes, then abruptly plunged into the river and swam across. His victims wisely remained in the trees some time after they had seen him climb the opposite bank and disappear in the forest fearful that he might be watching, and that their appearance would incite him to further mischief. Finally, convinced that they had really seen the last of him, Lewis gave the word and they slipped down from their perches. Ruefully, they approached the scene of the late one-sided conflict. "'What's this?' said Hal, digging up a mud-encrusted bundle of rags. Woodhall grinned weakly. "'It is, or rather it was, my best shirt.' the one I expected to wear home when we finished the cruise. Al opened it out and held it up to view. It was tattered and torn as if it had been through a threshing machine. Sand and mud were ground into it until its original color might have been anything so far as anyone could tell. Oh, my eye, he cried. How I should like to see you riding home in the choo-choo cars with this thing on, Lewis. Would all good-naturedly join with the others in the laugh that followed but he put an abrupt stop to it by calling to them the fact that there was no knowing when their unwelcome visitor might take it into his head to return. "'Get busy, boys,' he commanded briskly. "'Don't stop to take account of damages now. Time enough for that when we make camp tonight. Pick up this scattered stuff and cram it into the duffel bag, dirt and all. Hal, go hunt for that food bag. It fell right over back of that little birch tree. Walt, you better get that jersey on before your back gets any more sunburned than it is now, or you won't be good for much on a carry. The boys needed no second bidding, for they had no desire to renew acquaintance with their recent visitor. The scattered stuff was dug up and stuffed just as it was into the duffel bag. Al found the food bag rather the worse for wear, but still whole. Walter got his jersey, and 
not without protest, put it on. He was now firmly convinced that this was what had first drawn the attention of the moose, and he did not relish the idea of wearing it again until they were safely away from that vicinity. However, he had nothing else to put on, so there was nothing to do but obey. In less time than it takes to tell, they were ready to hit the trail. Woodhall, of course, carried the canoe, and he insisted on bringing up the rear. It is doubtful if that particular portage was ever made in quicker time. There was no complaining of aching backs or sore shoulders this time. It seemed as if with every third step one or another of the younger boys turned to give an apprehensive glance behind, so that presently Woodhall began to rally them, for he, being under the canoe, was forced to keep his eyes to the front. The carry was made without further incident, and no time was lost in getting afloat. Even Woodhall drew a breath of relief as they pushed off. "'How about that brain fever now, Lewis?' Walter taunted as the two canoes slipped along side by side. "'I feel as if I'd had it myself,' confessed Woodhall. "'It's beyond me. I know something about moose, but I never heard of one acting like this. I've hunted them in Maine and New Brunswick, and I've heard the guides tell all kinds of yarns about them. When they were wounded or thoroughly enraged, they are the most dangerous animals in the woods.' They will charge on sight, and they will keep a man in a tree for hours, days, some of the guides say. But at all other times they are the shyest of the shy. A man is lucky to get within camera shot in the middle of the close season. I never heard of one deliberately walking out to have his picture taken, let alone nosing around and trying to butt in where men are. If we didn't have photographs to prove it, everybody at home would give us the merry ha-ha when we sprung this story. Just what I said when Walt and I were discussing whether or not we'd tell you about our experience on the ridge, exclaimed Hal. Well, we've got the photographs to back us up now, thanks to Sister's nerve. Gee, I hope they come out well, said Walter, adding with a twinkle in his eyes. When are you going to have a wash day, Lewis? Tonight or tomorrow, replied Woodhall promptly. If we strike a decent campground, let's get a move on and get into camp early. The boys dipped their paddles with a will, and a few miles further down they sighted an opening, which on closer approach proved to be an abandoned lumber camp. "'Just the place we're looking for. There's sure to be a spring, and there's open space enough to properly dry the wash,' said Woodhall with a smile as he turned the bow of his canoe shoreward. End of chapter 9